Hey guys, Montel here, and thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And you know, one of the things that we try to do, we strive to do here at Let's Be Blunt is try to bring you as much information and education about, you know, cannabis and hemp so that you can make really good, responsible decisions when and if you happen to decide to go to a dispensary and navigate the space for your family's health and wellness needs. And, you know, today I'm really excited about having a guest on that we have because, you know, there's a perspective about cannabis, and well, I, I talk about it all the time. The fact that you know most people in this country have no idea what the history of cannabis is in America. They think that this is something that's been outlawed as a drug since day one, and since America became America, and that's just a ball-faced lie. Um, you know, if we really took the time to understand how we got to where we got to today, most people in this country would agree that cannabis should uh, hemp should have been you know, remain legal throughout the uh, entire time this country was has existed. Most people don't know when we, you know, uh, take history classes in school, you know, they try to give, uh, you know, students the impression that America was built on the backs of cotton and tobacco. And that's really a lie. America was really, truly originally built on the back of hemp. And most people don't understand that. We can go all the way back to, you know, pre-revolutionary war. Uh, you know, ships, sailing ships coming across the Atlantic Ocean, coming to the United States. Normally carried, uh, you know, bales, baskets, ton, a ton close to of hemp on board the ship and seeds. Uh, you know, we ate hemp seeds back at the turn of the century from the 1600s to 1700s. You know, uh, 1600s to early 1700s, most farmers were ordered by law to grow hemp in the United States of America. Uh, because it was part of how we fabricated things like sails and ropes. And, you know, the word canvas comes from cannabis. So, you know, the canvas that we use, the entire Revolutionary Army was clothed in hemp uniforms. People don't know that, you know. Uh, George Washington's um, mason tents were all made of cannabis. Um, and again, like I said, you know, a lot of people ate hemp seeds because we recognize even back then at the early part, late part of the 1600s, early part of the 1700s, that, you know, hemp uh, seeds were some of the highest protein laden seeds on the planet. And, uh, you know, uh, even during World War II, even after hemp had been outlawed, you know, the government had a hemp for victory program where, you know, lots of our farmers across the country, and especially in the area of the country that we're talking about today, uh, grew hemp for our war effort, for our sails and, and ropes for our ships. Um, so uh, it, it's really astonishing to me that people don't take the time to write. If you look at newspapers, go to a library, pull up a newspaper from like 1870 to 1890 and look at the classifieds, you'll see that, you know, probably, you know, 60 to 70 percent of the tinctures that were available at the time, you know, and medications and, and uh, you know, uh, things that were available at the time, included hemp in that that as a process because doctors recognized the you know, efficaciousness of hemp as a medical agent. And it wasn't until, you know, post-prohibition that those who were so involved in outlawing alcohol realized that they were going to lose their job if they didn't find something that they could demonstrate against. And also because of, you know, as we learned in a recent podcast, that because of you know, the the Mexican War, you know, um, and the fact that there was such a high influx of brown people into America, you know, um, 
you know, this was used as a racist uh, re-enslavement tool, in a sense, to incarcerate people and get them off the streets of America. So, you know, we really have to stop and think about our history before we think about what we're trying to do right now. And when we look at, you know, some of the attitudes of some of these deeply entrenched people saying, never have, never, never can marijuana, it's, it's a devil's weed. All this stuff is really just based on really bad, false information that was propagated just so that funding could continue in the uh, the offices of those who were trying to dictate to Americans how they should live. And, I, and you know, that's why, again, I'm excited about our, our show today because I guess today is a native of Lebanon, Kentucky. I said Lebanon, Kentucky. And he <laughs> wrote his first Nonfiction account of Cornbread Mafia, of the Cornbread Mafia, which tells the story of the biggest domestic marijuana syndicate in American history, which took place in his hometown of Marion County, Kentucky. With the book's success, he became a nationally recognized cannabis journalist covering Kentucky for the Washington Post and cannabis policy for Politico. And in 2018, he left journalism to co-found Cornbread Hemp with his cousin, Eric Zipperly, Jim Hagnon. Thanks so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today, sir. Montel, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a really great intro. You've given us so much to talk about already. I'm really excited to be here. You know, and you're right. We do have quite a bit to talk about. Let's let's start with your background. Where you're, you're from Marion, Kentucky, right? Yeah, I'm from I'm from Lebanon, Kentucky. Um, uh, geographic center of the state. Uh, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're about out of the pandemic. We're about ready to get back into social situations again. Back when we can meet people in bars, I used to be able to point to the red wax of a bottle of Maker's Mark bourbon behind a bar and say, I'm from there. Um, yeah. the, the Maker's Mark distillery is a, is, is a part of my hometown, um, part of my hometown economy. My grandmother was actually born on the distillery property during prohibition. Uh, and it's, um, uh, that corner of the world that we come from. Uh, and then, wow. As I was growing up, when I was in middle school, a lot of parents of my classmates started getting arrested. They started getting arrested um, in Kentucky and in other states. And between between 1985 and 1989, 70 white men from central Kentucky, from my neck of the woods, 70 men arrested on 30 farms in 10 states with 200 tons of marijuana in what federal officials said was the largest domestic marijuana syndicate in American history. But of these- And, 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 and federal law enforcement said that then, but then if they had looked back to, you know, 1710 to 1770, you would have realized that, you know, every single farm was the largest domestic cannabis grow in the country. Well, the, you know, the, the, the largest in Kentucky in the early 19th century was Henry Clay, who was Speaker of the House of Representatives in D.C., uh, running uh, something like uh, 25 enslaved black men to uh, uh, work his hemp fields in outside the Lexington area in central Kentucky. So, uh, yeah, go ahead, but, go ahead, go ahead, finish that. Finish that no, there's, there's, you know, the, the, the first documented hemp crop in Kentucky is 1775 when Kentucky was still a county of the colony of Virginia. Uh, so it's been part of Kentucky culture since before the Revolutionary War, before statehood. It's been a part of Kentucky culture uh, since the beginning of Kentucky, uh, even when it wasn't legal. So the cornbread mafia element to this takes place between the hemp for victory uh, moment that you were talking about during World War II and our current state of re-legalizing, because we're not legalizing cannabis at a national level. We're re-legalizing it, as you've pointed out. Um, and 
we're we're in this we're in this transitional period of 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 changing uh, the way that we um, the way we see this plant that had been such an important part of our agricultural economy uh, before it was used, as you point out, for uh, racist enforcement of 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 men of communities of color by by imposing laws upon them, incarcerating them, stripping them of their right to vote so that um, they couldn't be productive members of society. And, you know, if we look back at the legacy, you just said, nailed it, you know, you look back at the legacy of hemp in hemp and cannabis in Kentucky, dating back to the, you know, uh, 17th century, you know, um, uh, give me an idea of just what the attitudes were before you started recognizing some of your classmates, family members were being arrested. I'm sure that, you know, it was just part of society that nobody talked about, nobody made a big deal about, but I'm sure that every now and then some people sat back on their back porches and smoked a hemp cigarette or smoked cannabis and nobody made a big deal about it. Right. In the, you know, sixties and fifties and sixties and seventies in, in Kentucky. So my book reporting for Cornbread Mafia goes down this road. I'm trying to figure out when I when I'm working on that book when like how far back can I go in living memory? What what's the oldest living memory I can get of cannabis from where I'm from, and how does uh, how does that attitude change over time? And 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 and, and principally it goes back to the other like big question of the book that I was reporting. Why did this thing happen in central Kentucky? Why was the biggest marijuana syndicate in American history in central Kentucky and not California or Texas or Florida or New York? Like, why why did it happen in my community? And the reason came back over and over again to almost every one of these men that were arrested were Catholic, grew up Catholic, raised Catholic. Uh, I'm from a Catholic community, a rural white Catholic community in central Kentucky. What's this connection? And it came back to, as you point out, Prohibition, because before Prohibition, in my town, there were nine active alcohol distilleries uh, employing hundreds of Catholic men. And the moment uh, alcohol becomes illegal in 1919, all of those men are put out of a job. Only thing they know to do to support their families is criminalized. So they have a choice to make. Do they uh, break the law to support their families or do they let their families go hungry? And as a community, this whole community decides to break the law together. And, and to keep a culture of silence to prevent uh, outsiders, federal investigators from prosecuting and persecuting the community by being really tight knit and keeping their mouth shut. So it fostered this culture of us against them, of our community against against the world. Uh, and and two generations later, that feeling, that culture, uh, that mindset still existed. So when the grandsons of these prohibition guys go off to the Vietnam War, they come back to Kentucky with a knowledge of cannabis and its value in other places and have immediate connections nationwide because of the connections they've made um, in the army, in the military, uh, overseas. They're able to bring it back and start cultivating um, cannabis on a large scale and moving it at a large scale almost instantly. So we're talking like 1970. These guys were, were operational. And we're talking 1970 when a lot of people I can remember back in 70, 71, 72, where, you know, there used to always be this big saying about Mexican weed, Mexican weed. But the Mexican weed that we were probably getting up on the East Coast was probably Kentucky weed. There was a lot of that. 
um, before Kentucky, before these cornbread guys had established a name for themselves that Kentucky was a good place to grow cannabis, they were disguising the Kentucky grown weed as it as if it were uh, grown in um, Mexico, Colombia, Panama, Jamaica, uh, places where people were, were familiar with getting marijuana. They would lay it out in the uh, on the ground and spray it with uh, uh, lemon juice to make it, uh, uh, you know, to change its color so they could say it was from a different place. Uh, before they before Kentucky had a reputation on its own. And then by the time these by the mid 80s rolls around when Kentucky has established itself as a great place to grow cannabis. Now they're growing cannabis in other states because uh, helicopter enforcement from the Kentucky State Police has run them out of Kentucky. So they're growing it in Midwestern states, um, bringing it back to Kentucky and selling it as Kentucky grown cannabis to buyers in some cases from the same state they had grown it in, like they're growing it in Ohio, bringing it back to Kentucky and then selling it to people in Ohio as if it's Kentucky weed because it has uh, more value that way. And, you know, I, I remember, and this is, this is a, a walk down memory lane, but I can remember as a kid and, you know, my, my high school years, um, and I'm thinking, I don't know, it might've been 71, 72. Um, I remember, uh, one one friend who I played a band and you know my bandmates were always getting it and I remember one time that uh, you know one guy literally got the most weed I'd ever seen in any given setting it was maybe about two pounds worth and he uh, bought it to band practice and you know we were you know chop it up and help him you know get ready to move a little bit over around himself and I remember the fact that he claimed that it was Mexican weed but it was packed in newspapers. And the newspapers were, I don't remember if it was Kentucky, but I remember distinctly that it was newspapers from the South. And I'm saying to myself, now how the hell do people in Mexico get a newspaper to pack their weed in before they sent it to the United States? And it was just a question that I'd always had. I mean, I must have asked that question like 60 times. How does Mexican weed come to the United States and U.S. newspapers? And then now you're really answering my question because it was weed that was grown here in the United States. And, you know, I, I've known, you know, I, I will tell you since in the mid seventies that, you know, contrary to what that belief was by some that California weed was the best. I had always known that Tennessee, Northern Tennessee and Kentucky and, you know, that area was kind of like the breadbasket of, you know, and, and up the Appalachian Trail. I can remember walking the Appalachian Trail when I was, you know, got out of uh, high school, was in the military. And, and you know, uh, I was, um, you know, we would go take these weekend, you know, vacations and, and go cruise along the Appalachian Trail. And I can remember seeing pot, just marijuana just growing all along the trail. Because I, I was told that, you know, people had flown above and just dropped some seeds down, making it impossible for them, the DEA, to literally scour all of that real estate to find every plant right mm -hmm. well that also goes to once in in 1987 when the reagan administration puts in property seizure asset forfeiture for cannabis cultivation uh, it stops being grown on people's farms people stop growing it on their own property because that property is now at risk and so growing cannabis on public land becomes the new tactic and technique uh in the uh, illegal cannabis cultivations space uh, because uh, it protects a person from getting their land seized as a result of the cultivation. So that yeah, also may play a part in why someone's being grown on the trail. 
Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I think that's part of the reason why anywhere that they could drop some off on federal property, they were growing as much as they could on federal property, knowing that it wasn't going to be able to be seized. So why don't you, you know, let's let's go back in a little bit and talk about, you know, you graduated from journalism and, uh, you know, you entered from college, right? You mm-hmm. went to school for journalism. And yes, uh, but what made you decide to track down this path of cannabis instead of, you know, going off to write about, you know, anything in 87, how it could have been the fall of the, uh, the wall and, you know, the, the beginning of what was our Middle Eastern, you know, foray into now a 20 year long war. Um, why did you choose cannabis over that? Look, you gotta, you gotta write what you know, and you gotta, and you gotta, and, and so I went, I went to, a, I did a lot of schooling to get to where, I, to get to a point where I could tackle a book length project. Um, I went to a liberal arts school here in Kentucky called Center College. It's a really good school for me to start out at. Uh, I went straight to the Brown University Creative Writing Program, and that gave me the, um, the understanding that I could be a professional writer. The, the and and I moved to New York, uh, but was having trouble. Uh, finding a role as a creative writer uh, outside of journalism. And so I started working in journalism and then went to the Columbia Journalism School and the Columbia Journalism School got the techniques and tools necessary uh, to tackle this project. So what was fascinating about this Cornbread Mafia story wasn't just that it was the biggest in American history, according to the feds, but none of these guys talked. Of the 70 guys that were arrested, none of them cooperated. So there was this story here to write, but that no one had ever cracked the nut because no one would talk. And, and how I mean, how would you like if you could take us on a little journey? I'm so sorry that I have not read your book yet, but I'm going to read it this weekend. I'm hopefully going to get a copy of it, uh, paperback. And um, if you had to take us on a journey of the book and just kind of synopsize it, uh, take us on a little journey. Make sure people at home understand why they should go out and get a copy of it to read it, and so they get all the detail. But but you know, give us a little bit of a journey, a little taste of your book. Sure. So of these 70 guys that were arrested, none of them talk. And so the federal government, the prosecutors, this task force that was created to, to, to crack this organization was stuck. They were stuck because they had no witnesses. They were trying to run a RICO case, uh, an organized crime prosecution against this whole organization, and they were thwarted. Because the, the the community, the men that they had arrested, would rather do the time than be the witness. And so with 70 options, 70 men, they had no witnesses for this organized crime prosecution that they had laid out. So frustrated by this, the feds in the summer of 1989 held a press conference here in Louisville at the federal courthouse where they laid out their whole case against these men without giving any of them an opportunity to defend themselves and in the course of that press conference, one of the prosecutors referred to them as the cornbread mafia. And that cornbread mafia phrase captured the imagination of the assembled media in the room and hit the wire services. It ran on headlines in newspapers across the country and around the world. Uh, I interviewed a woman from my hometown uh, who uh, at the time was working as an accountant for PricewaterhouseCooper in Sydney, Australia. And she goes to lunch one day. And then comes back from lunch and all of her co-workers have plastered her cubicle with uh, headlines from the Sydney Morning Herald that say Cornbread Mafia all over them. And that was her hometown. Um, And so um, this is the story that captured the imagination of of the media and the press at the time. And 
in, in the process really traumatized my hometown and all the people in it because they, we were inundated by news crews, um, uh, news vans from the local uh, uh, affiliates from the, from the big networks trying to interview people about this thing that had happened. And these 70 men that were arrested happened over a course of five years from 85 to 89. But the way the cops or the, the prosecutors laid it out in this press conference, it made people think that it had happened all at once, that they'd send buses down and rounded a, bu a bunch of people up. And that's just really not what had happened. So it traumatized our town in a way that that really turned uh, people who were had been against marijuana or were against marijuana, but were but were more against how the community was treated um by the by the federal government and then by the media uh, chasing a story that the federal government had fed them. So so my book is an exploration of this criminal syndicate, but then taking that criminal syndicate and putting it in an appropriate cultural history so that people understand how we got here. It wasn't just something that happened overnight out of the blue in a bubble. These this this large community of men who decided to go about uh, uh, growing cannabis, uh, it just didn't happen overnight. It happened for a variety of reasons. And some of those were cultural relative to their Catholicism and the Catholic culture that extends through prohibition. And some of it was purely economic. The tobacco economy had collapsed. The unemployment rate in my county was 20% in 1980. And these men were, were proud men. They would rather work for a living than take a handout. And so they were engaging in criminal activity to feed their families. And now I'm sure that the the hemp for victory program was was in Kentucky, was it not? Big time. So some of these people, literally next generation, followed suit of their grandfathers and so forth, and continued to grow what they had already been growing anyway. Uh, 100%. So some of these guys' fathers, grandfathers, uncles had been involved in the hemp for victory movement. So so remembered the crop as it existed and were able to consult with these young uh, guys coming back from Vietnam, how to grow cannabis, because they remembered as kids during World War II, how they had done it. So, so there was some um, immediate uh, learned, you know, uh, uh, history. People knew how to, how to grow it. The, growing tobacco by the acre wasn't anything new. Uh, you know, making moonshine and hiding a moonshine still was nothing new. All they had to do was grow it and not get caught. And not getting caught was part of how people operated. So it was just something that people slid right into, and 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 right away they were growing it by the acre. I mean, they were they they tried their best to impress you know the world with the fact or the volume, you know, two hundred tons of of cannabis seeds. But what do you think that its economic impact was on the state of Kentucky? You mean you mean economically? Yeah, economically, what, what did that translate into? You think over the course of the run? Well, you know, so it's, it's hard to put a number on the money when you know guys weren't talking about anything at all, and I was able to squeeze just enough out of these guys to get the story straight. Um, you know, from cause from a cause and effect relationship, uh, getting a getting a, a you know a straight accounting of the, of the dollars and cents is much more difficult from a journalistic perspective. But I was able to pin down. You know, a couple of key details that help understand uh, the volume of the economy that we're talking about uh, in the 80s in central Kentucky in this way. Uh, my town um, currently has about 10,000 people in it. Um, in, in the 80s, you know, it was, it was smaller than that. So we're talking a, a small town. 
But in the 80s, it had way more used car dealerships than a town of its size should have had, in retrospect. Um, and a used car lot is a great way to move a lot of $10,000 transactions on books, right? right. Um, so these used car lots on the books were doing a lot better business than they were uh, perhaps in real life because a used car lot was a great way to um, – to hide a lot of transactions. And then on top of that, you, uh, you know, you, you envision like a 1979 Lincoln Continental and what the trunk space on a vehicle like that might be, you know, you can fit about 150 pounds of cannabis in the trunk of a late 1970s Lincoln Continental. And then you can put eight of those on a car carrier and move that truck basically anywhere you want to go with a thousand, 1200, uh, pounds of pounds of weed. So, right. That was one piece that I was able to sort of ascertain in terms of getting my head around the scale of the uh, distribution out of my town. And the other thing that I found, uh, which was very fascinating, is, again, hard to hard to forensically figure out the dollars. But the Federal Reserve had to alter the armored car delivery schedule for my town because the banks were getting deposited with too much cash. They had to they had to send more armored cars to my town to get the cash. Right. And so I, I it just seems hard to fathom how during the period of time that the mafia operated how they were able to hide so much money in plain view. Again, it was the culture everyone, you know, people didn't ask questions, people didn't talk. You know, and guys would would buy a brand new Corvette on a Friday, they'd wrap it around a tree on a Saturday, and they'd be back with a new Corvette on a Monday. Got it, got it, got it. And you know, as you, uh, one of the things that I found very interesting is that as this this when they the Fed stepped in and and started arresting folks, um, two things. One, again, no one talked. Um, was there a central figure that would have been considered the, the godfather or the person in charge of it all? It really wasn't like that. Um, it's fascinating. It's a great question. You know, the, you know, the feds call them a cornbread mafia. So you figure there's like some like Corleone type. Um, but it was really more organic than that. Uh, more of a, an illicit marketplace than a, a pyramid type, um, you know, rigidly formatted, uh, you know, boss at the top with lieutenants and and soldiers. It just it was more uh, family groups, uh, groups of brothers and cousins uh, who were operating sort of independently as as various you know cells. And then those those crews would either be co- uh, would either cooperate or be competitive with each other depending on the situation. Like you know, someone gets an order in for a thousand pounds. Um, maybe they go to another crew and, and ask for product to help fill that, uh, fill that order. Um, or also at the same time, maybe they're competing against each other for, to sell to the same client. So it's, there, there was, there wasn't a strict, uh, hierarchy in the, in, in this particular outlaw world. It, it existed more of a, as, as a loose association. And as the Fed went after people, were they looking to see if they could identify some ringleader? They had three ringleaders in mind when they were trying to lock it down. Okay. And then did, did they lock these guys up? Did they, did they end up going to prison? Uh, yeah, they all went to prison for various lengths of time. Um, 
One of them was a fugitive, uh, was arrested. Um, so one interesting thing about this is as, a, as victims of their own success, they were growing outdoor Kentucky cannabis. So the harvest was in the fall and all that stuff had to be dried and processed and packaged. So it really wasn't available to distribute until uh, December, January. And they had a lot and their buyers would be like, this is great. We're going to need this much again in March. And they're like, what do you mean in March? You know, we're not going to have any more until, you know, next year. Next year. But because of the size that they were distributing, they had to they had to generate more supply in the off season. And so then they started smuggling uh, Latin American cannabis in order to supplement their distribution channel while also growing outdoor in America uh, for their original harvest season. So these guys were also bringing in large amounts of Caribbean and Latin American cannabis. Um, and one of these guys, his name is Bobby Joe was named in a, um, in a conspiracy, um, um, prosecution in Savannah, Georgia. And he was one of 30, uh, co-defendants in this case. And he's the only one who didn't crack. Everyone else pointed a finger and he wouldn't. So he he took the fall for the whole thing, which was a plot to bring in a shrimp boat load of Colombian cannabis into St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, and he, Bobby Joe, was merely the tail end of it. The uh, he was the, the 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 land distribution from Florida back into Kentucky. But because he was the only one who didn't didn't talk, he got rolled up for this whole operation. Um, and then after he was found guilty, he became a fugitive and was a fugitive for five years. So in the end, he did 35 years, I believe, because he had the charge and then he had the uh, uh, extra time for being a fugitive on top of it. Um, Johnny Boone, who's the the gentleman on the cover of my book, uh, he did, I believe, uh, 18 years of 20. Um, and the Bickett brothers, Jimmy and Joe Keith Bickett, did 20 and 25 years. Um, most mm -hmm. of the guys that were caught up in this ended up doing six months to three years. Uh, but the ones that they thought were the big guys, they really stepped on. And I guess a couple of these guys got ended up being, being, um, you know, uh, granted uh, clemency by uh, president Obama. Three of them. Three of them. So, uh, so one was granted a full pardon and two were, uh, had their sentences commuted and were let out of uh, it, does that, that strike you kind of like as ironic that it would take the African-American president to grant these guys clemency? Whereas, you know, I mean, this should have been work done by uh, Senator McConnell, you know, because he was really big on the hemp bill and He's big really on his passage. Did he support so getting these guys taken out? Senator McConnell, big on the hemp bill, but still also big on cannabis enforcement and where how he draws that line. I'm still unclear on. Um, I, I, we applaud Senator McConnell for getting us into uh, uh, hemp legalization. Um, our business is dependent on uh, Senator McConnell's leadership to get us this far, but we're sort of halfway or you know a fraction of the way where we need to be. And um, Senator McConnell seems um, uh, less inclined to uh, take the next you know sets of steps. Um, as for you know you know as for it happening under President Obama, of course. We, we, we applauded President Obama and his like 
lengthy computations, not just the three from Kentucky, but, you know, maybe more than any other president uh, commuting and uh, granting clemency for to drug crimes. But, you know, we're still waiting for that blanket, that blanket pardon, that blanket clemency um, that uh, folks are asking President Biden for, for all people who are prosecuted under federal law for cannabis crimes over the years, um, much like uh, Carter did with um, uh, uh, draft dodgers for the Vietnam War. Right, absolutely. Now you've gone on to now you're no longer working full time as a journalist. You've gone on to found your own hemp company called Cornbread Hemp, right? You did that in 2018 along with your cousin. That's right. And how's that going? It's going. It's going great. We 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 work all the time, and it's a it's a fantastic opportunity. You know, as a journalist uh, working today, um, I was looking for my opportunity to. Um, to take the, inf- the, the the knowledge that I'd gained as a journalist, as a book writer, and apply them to the real world in a meaningful way. And as the 2018 uh, Farm Bill started to um, materialize, like we were going to legalize hemp for good with Senator McConnell's leadership, um, I started realizing like this was going to be the opportunity. Um, there, there were hemp pilot projects that were already underway, already hemp brands making CBD products in the space, in, in the industry, in America. And none of them were doing it in, in a way that felt right to me. Uh, they didn't have uh, a sense of history, a sense of culture. They were, they were marketing their hemp products as this is not weed. This is not marijuana. This is not cannabis. This is something different and new. Um, and it just seemed dishonest. To me, be to market hemp in that way, especially Kentucky hemp, uh, having spent all the time and doing all the work, um, putting together what that history and, and meant to the culture it comes from. And so it was just this perfect opportunity. My my cousin has an MBA and an e-commerce background, and I was coming with this uh, cannabis industry experience and the name recognition, having uh, written the Cornbread Mafia book. And we joined forces and and put our heads together. And by the end of 2019, we were the first CBD brand from Kentucky to offer USDA organic CBD products from Kentucky. And that's and it's based on your, all your products are full uh, flower only extracted full spectrum. You got it. Uh, and, 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 and the flower only is a key part of this, right? Most CBD brands are using the whole plant, what they call aerial parts, which means every part of the plant that touches the air. Uh, so they're taking the, the, the stems and the leaves. And they're Sticks. grinding, yeah. They're grinding it up and, and pelletizing it, and then extracting uh, the CBD extract from the pellets. But that's why it tastes gross. Folks who get CBD oil that tastes grassy and bitter, it's because of the sticks and stems and the leaves in there. So we do a flower-only extraction. It's it's a much lower yield per you know per pound. We get a fraction of the of the biomass by only using the flower. But the end result is. Our CBD oils taste like cannabis flowers, not like the back end of a lawnmower. And we don't need uh, cover flavors like uh, peppermint and cinnamon to uh, cover up the flavor of our product because our product already tastes exactly how it should. And what are some of the products that you are you now offer? Um, well, our flagship products are our CBD oils. We offer those in whole flower and distilled, which are both full spectrum. The distilled is lighter. And for folks who are new to hemp, new to cannabis, the distilled is a, um, a milder uh, flavor product. Um, and, and folks um, use the, the distilled uh, during the day and the whole flower in the evening. And then we have a full line of certified organic topical CBD products. We have two lotions and a hemp balm stick. 
uh, for, you know, for active adults, for their, for their, for their, for, it's funny, uh, because the FDA won't let CBD brands, um, products to make medical claims it becomes difficult to talk about what my products are good for so as we as we talk about it, i'm catching myself and, and editing myself on the fly so if you see me uh hesitate it's because um our our topical products are great for active adults and their uh, muscles and joints but i can't tell you specifically why or how they might be used and for what reason Sure, sure. Doesn't it drive you a little crazy, though, when you take a look at the, like, literally one of the things that has driven me crazy uh, in this industry is the fact that, you know, we spend so much time B2B mm-hmm. giving information out about how to start a business, but we don't spend a lot of time B2C educating the consumer and giving mm-hmm. them some information so that they can make a you know, good you know decision for themselves. And you know, some of that's constrained by law. You're not allowed to educate the consumer, even though we now know that there's a lot of information that's out there that is peer-reviewed, studied, and published in medical journals all over the world. I don't understand why, you know, we have hit this point where we still can't talk about things that are medically reported. Well, it's, it's really instructive where we are in the CBD space as we work to legalize cannabis that we're going to face the same um problem on the other side of cannabis legalization at a federal level 35 states have medical marijuana programs commonly understood to be medical marijuana programs but until the FDA approves cannabis for medical purposes there can be no federal medical marijuana program and there can be no marketing of cannabis as medical for any reason until the FDA approves it as such so right. We're the, the the hemp derived CBD hemp derived cannabinoid space that we're in now, where cornbread hemp is operating, is in a you know in a gray area that's the cusp of the turn of the you know of of the you know of of from before before prohibition to you know to where we are now this um, you know paradigm shift uh, from from one way of thinking to another, and it's a you know, one of the growing pains of, of, of changing an entire nation, entire world's understanding of the cannabis plant. Um, but it's a great place to be. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. But as we move towards on, uh, on cannabis, it's something that everyone needs to be clear eyed about. Legalizing it through Congress is only step one. We've got a lot of work to do on the other side of it. On the other side of the and you know, I mean, I think that that's the, the well, you know, it's like, but then, you know, what are your views on, I know recently, supposedly, the president has, um, you know, made some statements that are on a record uh, about changing his attitude a little bit towards cannabis. But we got to remember that our president who's elected is, is uh, feels that uh, cannabis is still a gateway drug. And, you know, he's got a vice president who, you know, during her tenure as uh, you know attorney general, ensured the prosecution and incarceration of you know, as many as anybody had done before her, uh, especially when it comes to people of color. So what do you think? And if you had the crystal ball and you've been in this business now for quite a long time, um, if you had the crystal ball, what do you think is going to happen in the next year, next two years? Well, my crystal ball keeps changing on this. So um, I I spoke recently uh, with um, with the Cato Institute on this issue, and I told them then that um, this is January of 21, that 
we were going to have to wait till the next farm bill. Uh, and in the next farm bill, the entire cannabis prohibition exists in one line in the farm bill that restricts the level of THC in legal hemp to 0.3%. And already state agriculture directors are, are requesting that level be moved up to 1%, which would be great for hemp farmers and for CBD products. Uh, but the entire cannabis prohibition as a thing exists in this one line in the farm bill. If we can eliminate that one line in the farm bill, then cannabis is legal. So that's a backstop. So two years from now or so, 22, 23, will we'll, uh, Congress, the agricultural committees in the House and the Senate will mark up the next farm bill, which will be a giant appropriations bill that funds the USDA. And in the process of that farm bill, we can change a lot about cannabis reform in that bill if Congress has not legalized it already, which I thought would be the thing. But then immediately after I had that chat with Cato Institute, then Senator Schumer, Senator Booker, Senator Wyden come out with a memo saying, no, we're going to legalize cannabis this Congress this year. We're going to have a bill in the Senate on the Senate floor in the you know in the first half of 2021. So we're all waiting to see uh, how Senator Schumer uh, prioritizes cannabis reform in the Senate um, and how vulnerable Democrats in the House then feel about voting for cannabis reform as they run for re-election in 22. Yeah, but you know, and again, now if the farm bill changes the the amount allowed up to 1%, we still have to do something about this congressional scheduling of cannabis as a schedule 1 drug. Well, so what McConnell has done is separated uh, marijuana, which is a racist term for cannabis, um, and hemp, uh, by redefining hemp in the federal register as uh, cannabis with not more than 0.3% THC. So hemp, as defined by Congress, has been removed from the drug schedules by definition, and then that definition of hemp is 0.3% THC. So all we have to do is move the, the limit on THC to above, you know, 0.3 to 1%, 2%, 10%, 20%, 100%. And that becomes def defined as hemp. And so therefore is removed from the schedules. Right. But I mean, if we, if we limit it to 1%, you still have cannabis right. that right now what we've been doing in this country, which is, I think, insane. And that's that, you know, this battle to see how high a percentage of THC we can breed into a plant that was never meant to have that much THC in it to begin with. Um, is really ridiculous. And what we're seeing in legal states is is um, that trend is going in the other direction. We're getting more balanced strains now that people know what to look for. It's very similar to alcohol prohibition, where moonshine was over 100, 100 proof because it was more difficult to transport uh, lower proof alcohol. So they were they were they were making as strong alcohol as possible because it was illegal and and, and similar uh, and similar to cannabis. Uh, when cannabis was illegal, they were breeding highest possible THC levels. But now that it's becoming legal, um, the ratio between THC and CBD is becoming more important, and those levels seem to be coming down a bit. And going back to where it was, I, mean, I can remember cannabis in the in the early 70s that, you know, probably had no higher than 11% THC in it. Right. And it was really good cannabis. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, I defy anybody to tell me that they know for a fact that because, because again, of everybody's individual 
metabolisms and how it affects people individually, everybody's individual endocannabinoid system, you know, uh, 25% for one person could really feel like 7% for another person or 7% for one person could feel like 30% for another person. So, and we don't know whether or not the number being higher is responsible for a higher euphoria or a higher or a, a greater euphoria or a longer duration euphoria. We still haven't figured that out yet. That's right. Yeah, it's, you know, like a, a lot of the science, we're, we've lost the science because because the authoritarians and federal government restricted the science. And that's why nations like Israel are leading the world in cannabis research, because they don't have those kinds of restrictions. And it's like Israel who are leading the world be based on funding that the U.S. government gave them back in the 80s and the 90s, which I think is just absolutely ridiculous also. So, you know, as we look at as uh, this comes becomes part of, I think, the fabric of America, again, the way it should have always been. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're involved in, just like I have been involved in, the last prison project, are you not? And, and right. Holman Hemp does support that. Let's talk about that a little bit. Well, the the D'Angelo brothers do a great job raising awareness on, on, on these issues. And we couldn't be a, a right-minded CBD brand uh, engaged in hemp without with having a, a serious give back mission uh, and in an awareness raising mission to let our customers know, consumers know uh, that we understand where we fit in this um, in this industry. And, and it's, it's not just about uh, legalizing and moving forward. It's about repairing the damage that's been done. And the last prisoners project's goal is to get every prisoner who's locked up uh, for marijuana crimes, for cannabis crimes, um, out of prison, which is an ambitious, big goal, and it's one that um, that that's you know in line with my journalism work and now our business. It was really easy to to to, to support. So we've um, during the holiday season, we gave our, our customers an opportunity to donate to the Last Prisoner Project upon checkout, and we're also doing some uh, some work this year to um, uh, raise as much money as we can to help that effort. Great. Great. You want to add anything else? Anything else you want to add? Well, it's just one, like, you know, it's thrilled to be here. Like I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to, you know, I, I think lending your voice, particularly you uh, to this issue is really important because um, uh, as a face and as a name, uh, Montel Williams has been in the homes of so many um, uh, Americans in places where uh on their TV, they get told the opposite of, the, of what we're talking about now. And you're a familiar face that people trust. And particularly um, in a generation above me, in, a, in, in the baby boomer generation, you're a person that people trust and respect and know. And for you to be engaged in this kind of work is is really important to us. And I, I just want to thank you for for devoting your time and your efforts to doing it. Really, sir. You know, I don't know if you know, but I've, I've literally been involved with cannabis since I first started to actually consume myself as a patient. Back in 2001, trying my best to impress upon the need for, you know, states to make a viable medication available to everyone. And I'm going to continue to do that as long as, uh, you know, my voice is worth being heard. So I thank you for that. Thank you so much. And I also thank you for your book. I'm going to try my best to get a copy of it this weekend and uh, get it read. And and thank you for all your work in uh, the hemp space. I, um, you know, had a product out of my own uh, for a while. and. I'm in the process of getting ready to uh, get back into the laboratory and do some more reformulations. Um, 
and you know one of the 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 partner production facility or uh you know manufacturing partner that i'm going to use we've already been looking into kentucky grown flour uh uh for smallpox here's the secret about kentucky that you might not know that i found out in the course of reporting my book that's cornerstone to uh, how we differentiate our product at Cornbread Hemp because it's Kentucky grown. One of the things that makes, like you said, Kentucky and Northern Tennessee uh, sits along the 37th parallel. 37th parallel wraps through Southern Kentucky, just north of the Tennessee border, um, crosses California at uh, Santa Cruz, and then on the other side of the world goes through the Hindu Kush mountains. And the Hindu Kush is where all indica strains originated. And so the light cycles in Kentucky are just right for uh, cannabis because that's where they grew up, except the Hindu Kush is a rocky, rugged, mountainous terrain. And in Kentucky, we have the bluegrass basin, which is why the bourbon and the horses in the bluegrass basin are superior to its competition globally because of the of the soil and the water. Yes. Well, very, very clear. And I'm telling you, I, I'm, I'm so excited. And I got to say, thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt today, my friend. Um, you know, you always have a home here. Uh, so if you ever want to come back and talk about anything that you're doing, uh, please do. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that you plan on putting out more um, journalistic work. Do you? I'm engaged full time in cornbread hip. So uh, until um, until I retire from this endeavor uh, a long time from now, uh, I am I am fully engaged in bringing Kentucky hemp products to uh, American wellness consumers. Uh, but down the road, there's you know a couple of book projects I put on hold to to, to co-found this company, and and I'll dust them off and and, and get cracking uh, at a later date. But it's going to be some time. Have you ever thought about turning your book, uh, Corbett Mafia, into a movie or into a docuseries or something like that? Because I think that it would be well received. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Docuseries is, would be would be difficult. Um, the, the book to film rights were caught up in uh, what I learned was development hell in L.A. for quite some time. Uh, I've now sprung those loose and we're... Um, uh, talking to interested parties right now, uh, hour-long TV drama, uh, you know, Netflix, Amazon would certainly be the the, the appropriate landing place uh, for the project. Uh, I would love for it to start in the '70s and every season be a subsequent uh, presidential administration. So it starts in the Nixon administration and it goes into the Carter administration and then it goes into the Reagan administration, uh, and you get to see how the laws change around this community around the same cast of characters as they're engaged in the same sort of work. Sure, that's a very, very interesting way to roll it out. Yeah, I'd love to, love to see if I can help you uh, do that. So we'll we'll talk about it on another occasion. Okay. So, so thank you so much, Mr. Higdon, for being a part of the show today. Um, you know, I think that you've just schooled us all, and um, I think my viewers are really going to appreciate it. So, and if they want to get some information, where do they go? What's the website? They go to, they go to cornbreadhemp.com. They go to at cornbreadhemp on Instagram and Twitter. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Pinterest. Come find us. And you can get the copy of the book on Amazon, Cornbread Mafia? Sure. Uh, Cornbread Mafia, sure, it's available on Amazon, but I also encourage folks to go visit their local uh, independent bookseller and ask them to get it as well. Great. Super. Thank you so much, sir. You stay well. And you, make sure you keep tuning in to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thank you.